So this afternoon, um, we are about some church family business. Uh, that's right, because we're going to be hearing stories from our church, and I want to ask you to join me now as we invite God's presence among us. Gracious God, we acknowledge that only you can make a day, and you made this one. Some of us have been anticipating it for many months, looking forward to what might be accomplished as we're together. So we ask that your spirit will fill this place and inspire our hearts to learn from one another. We want Jesus to be glorified through all we do, and we pray in his name. Amen. So the uh, Bellevue Presbyterian Church Third Way Justice and Racial Reconciliation Team, which Anthony dubbed the Justice League and got us uniforms. <laughs> Those are the folks who have uh, prepared and produced this event this afternoon, and uh, it is really good to have all of you sharing in it, especially our panelists. Here they are. Let's hear it for them. There's quite a bit of printed information in your program about them, so we don't really need to do uh, biographies. Um, I even saw they had a piece in there about Tom, so... I won't give you my biography either. <laughs> I'll be serving as the moderator, and um, I've been asked to open this session with a brief theological slash historical framework, kind of a, a way to set the experience for our discussion. And I really do mean discussion. Um, that's something that we won't just lay on the panelists, but we'll also invite you into, and there's a time for question and answer, and you'll see in your program a card that looks like this. So let me encourage you, as we're going along and hearing these stories, if something comes to mind that you'd like to ask about or make a comment on, don't wait. Put it down on the, on the card, and then you'll be able to pass them in when we get to the end of the uh, spoken sessions, and we'll process some of those things. Then later, when we're dismissed into our dinner time, we'll have some table discussion as well. So you're here not to be a spectator, you're here to be a participant in what should be a very instructive experience. So let's get into it. The first thing that I want all of us to understand for this discussion is that there is, in fact, only one race, the human race. The Bible teaches that humanity was created by God. And as I move forward, I'm going to read a few texts of Scripture, and you'll find them all printed on the back of this program. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, from creation, all human beings have borne the image of God. He is our creator. And human beings all have the same psychosocial, spiritual, physical characteristics. There is no single gene or cluster of genes that is common to all the people of color or to all white people. And by the way, white is a color too. 
Some of you, like myself, fossil age folks, will remember your first carton of crayons. And you looked in there and found one called flesh. So based on what we learn in scripture, we know that Africans and Asians and Caucasians and Indians and Arabs and Jews and all of the diversity that we can see in the human family, they are not different races, but different ethnicities of the one human race. And from the Bible, we also learn that our first parents, Adam and woman, willfully disobeyed our creator and fell from their fellowship with God into a state of brokenness. We commonly call it sin. All humans since have been born into this state of brokenness. We call it the fall, meaning that reality as we experience it is not what God made it or meant it to be. Rather, we are all fallen inhabitants of a fallen world. Now in the Bible's first testament, sometimes referred to as old, though hmm, it carries a very contemporary message, God divided fallen humanity into two groups. One group descended from Abraham bore the name Hebrews, and all the rest of the people not descended from Abraham are captured in the term Gentiles. God's purpose was for the Jews, Abraham's descendants, to be a kingdom of priests, ministering to the Gentile peoples and eventually bringing them to God. Instead, for the most part, the Jews became proud of their status and they despised other peoples, the Gentiles. Consequently, an enormous divide separated Jews from Gentiles for many centuries until the time Jesus was born into space-time and history. Jesus Christ came into flesh and put an end to that division by destroying the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and all the other people, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it's on your program, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. From this we see that scripture declares that all forms of racism, prejudice, discrimination, are affronts to the work of Jesus Christ accomplished by his death and his resurrection. As early as 48 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor, free, nor uh, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Bible teaches that neither ethnicity, nor social class, nor gender distinction must ever divide the body of Christ. 
Now, today in America, despite a Christian heritage, our society is plagued by enormous divisions, and the most devastating of them all is the racial divide. How can that be? Racial, racial classifications, that is the division of people by a social construct, began in our country in the 1600s with three ethnically distinct groups. They were Native Americans, indigenous people who had inhabited the land for centuries, even millennia. Immigrant Europeans who traveled across the oceans to colonize this land. And Africans who were captured and imprisoned in Africa, then forcibly transported and enslaved by some colonists to serve as a labor, labor force for colonization. Immigrant Europeans and their first-generation children, that is, first-generation Americans, rose to prominence in the 1700s, and they became the founders of a nation. Socioeconomic realities of the previous century, including the subhumanization of Native Americans and Africans, tragically was not corrected, but was codified in America's foundational documents, and a grievous flaw was systemically ingrained in the body politic, racism, America's original sin. This afternoon, our panelists, our sisters and brothers from Bell Prez will share personal stories of experiencing racism. Not 200 plus years ago, but presently in the 21st century. Right now, here at Bell Prez, we're hearing weekly messages on the theme, love where you are. And we're all being invited into an experience of healing and reconciliation as we truly listen to others and share our own stories. We're living in a time of tremendous opportunity. Let's aspire and work for justice. Let's do as we're told, love where we are. I'll close my preamble with words of solidarity in scripture that were spoken by a zealous Jewish Christian to pagan idolatrous Gentiles. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and, be, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that he, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live, we move, we have our being. All of us are invited to live and move in him, 
during the experience of this afternoon. Are we ready? Are we ready to think clearly? Ready to feel deeply as we hear these stories from our church? Of course, we are. First to share their story, William and Pam, um, we know you've got stories to tell. And I guess what we wonder is, did you work out in advance whose version of which story gets told? We did. Yeah. William goes first. There was, there was a little competition there. She's handing you the mic, William. Yeah. Thank you, Tom, for the, is this one? Yeah. yeah, thank you, Tom, for the preamble. We can't hear that enough. I, I, that's the first, and we can't hear that enough, and what the scriptures teach us and how it guides us. I thank you all for all for coming today, and I thank for the opportunity to do this. Mm -hmm. um, if you guys have read our bio, uh, oh, sorry. If you've read our bio, you, you would see that, I mean, we would say that we lead a pretty ordinary life. We would like to, like to say that, but we don't. Um, racism does not allow us to lead an ordinary life. Racism complicates our life. It's systemic, it's pervasive, and it's unavoidable for us. There's the prejudice, the discrimination, and the injustice of racism. Those things are, are generally guarded and handled by laws. And let me say that I sometimes find myself ashamed of our nation that in our Declaration of Independence, it says all men are created equal, but we have to lean on laws and regulations to assure that all God's children are treated fairly. There's the hate, the bigotry, and the harassment of racism. And those things can only be changed with a change of heart. Me being black does not complicate our lives. I'm more than comfortable in my skin. Black culture in our life does not complicate our lives. We celebrate it. And being in an interracial marriage does not complicate our lives. Um, and being in an interracial marriage has never been a concern for us. Uh, we were adults when we got married and it just wasn't gonna be an issue. It wasn't an issue with our families. It wasn't an issue with our friends. We do have our fair share of stuff in our lives. As Scott says, I have stuff, you have stuff, we all have stuff. <laughs> we do. Racism adds to and complicates our lives and complicates our stuff. And not just a little bit. There's, it's more than the inconveniences and the irritations that come along with it. It's more than the looks we get are being watched or being followed. There's also the disrespect and the dismissive and degrading attitudes and behaviors. One thing that's not in the bio, I, I'm vice president and chief financial officer of a company that I've worked with for 33 years. When I was first hired, um, I was actually recruited to the company. I wasn't looking for the job. To come fill a void in the company. A void, not one that they had previously filled and someone left, it's one that they recognized they needed someone to come into the company. It took us a year and a half for me to 
be able to fulfill the responsibilities that I was hired for because of pushback in the company, because of my being hired. We actually had to hire a consulting firm to come in and interview the company's leadership and redo our organization chart to validate my hire because there was pushback in my being hired. These are the things when I say racism is a burden. Every day, racism is a burden on us every day. There's not issues every day, but we have to be concerned with it every day. I have to be concerned about our family and our children facing racism every day. Our justice and racial reconciliation team, um, over the past couple of years, we've, had a, we've offered a Bible study to the congregation, to the church, mm. called Facing Racism to teach and explore what the Bible and the scriptures say about injustice and oppression and exclusion and how the church should respond to racism. We invite people to join the conversation about facing racism. Because of the color of my skin, because of the color of my children's skin, facing racism is not an option. It's not a choice. We don't have the luxury or the privilege to put it off to a more convenient time. Uh, in my bio, it says that I, I attended WSU, Washington State University. Go Cougs. <laughs> Cougars. Cougars. Um, I've spent a lot of time traveling back and forth. I've, I've visited and, and gone to Pullman numerous times. I've traveled to Spokane. I have friends in Spokane. We have friends in Yakima. I spent countless weekends in the summers in Yakima. I have friends. We go hiking and biking and water skiing. We have friends in Wenatchee. I've skied Stevens Pass and Mission Ridge. We go camping on Camino Island on a regular basis. We like traveling. We like traveling before we had kids, and we drive a lot when we had kids, after the kids came along. In April 2018 in the Seattle Times, it reported that there's a white supremacist group linked to multiple homicides across the country, and they have one of the largest chapters in Concrete, Washington. I've been to Concrete, Washington. I wasn't aware of this until April of 2018. There's a group of young men, they get together at a concrete plant outside of town and they bring out their uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist regalia and their guns and they shoot their guns and do their chants and drink and have bonfires and do what they do. And then they get in their cars and drive around Skagit County in the Bellingham area looking to terrorize people from the cars. This is what goes on. And this is some of the things that I have to be concerned about. Driving to Bellingham where my daughter goes to school at Western, driving through the Skagit Valley, driving to Eastern Washington. In December of 2018, the Seattle Times reports that a neo-Nazi linked group, uh, there was a beating of a black DJ in Linwood. They have an annual pilgrimage. This group has an annual pilgrimage to Whidbey Island December 8th of every year. There was a compound there back in the mid-80s that the FBI had to raid and break up, and some of the uh, people died there. And so this neo-Nazi group has a pilgrimage on Whidbey Island every December 8th. Like I said, we camp regularly up on Camino Island and travel to Whidbey Island. These are the things I have to be aware of. We have to, our safety is of concern. These aren't mere inconveniences and little things that go on. These are safety issues.
What's hard to deal with is that coming up on people like this, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can say that would get past their racism, that would get past their racist intents. That's where racism really, truly complicates our lives. I'm going to turn over to Pam now. <laughs> um, again, I would like to thank everybody for being here and the, and the opportunity to, um, for us to be here. Um, we, don't, we don't focus on racism in our family. We don't sit and talk about it or um, sensationalize it, but it's always there. There's always an undercurrent. Um, and sometimes just talking to my kids, things come out. Um, our, our son's name is uh, Sam. He's 24. Uh, last fall he was at our, I think it was last fall, he was at our house. It was within the last year. And we were just talking. And uh, he had told me about an incident. Um, and I just want to share that with you. Uh, he and his girlfriend had gone to the coast for a long weekend. Um, uh, he told me that the, the man who, would, who was checking them into their uh, hotel, um, who was white, would not look at him or talk to him. And it was so obvious. The man would only look at and talk to his girlfriend, um, who is white. Uh, afterward, his girlfriend commented on how really bizarre that was, uh, that the man completely and blatantly ignored Sam. Uh, and my, my son said to his girlfriend that, um, well, you have to understand, that's what it's like to have a black boyfriend. Um, this whole incident just hurt my heart. Um, but what my hurt my heart even more than the incident itself was the matter-of-fact way that my son talked about it and shared it with me. Um, this is a fact of his life. Um, this was not the first time something like this had happened to him. Um, and when this led to a, this little talk with my discussion with my son led to another incident that he remembered. He said, Mom, do you, do you remember that, um, that time in the grocery store? And I said, yeah. And my heart kind of fell like, oh, I was hoping he didn't remember. Mm. Um, and my son and I were walking down the grocery store aisle, pushing a cart. Um, he was in his late teens. And if you know my son, and some of you do, he is a talker. He's always <laughs> chatting and always nattering. Uh, and so we were talking. We were nattering away, uh, going down the grocery store aisle. Um, he took the cart and went ahead of me to look for something. And within seconds, a woman uh, who was white came up to me, really agitated, and told me that that black guy had just taken my cart and she was pointing. And I responded, I know, he's my son. Um, you know, they sound like little things, um, but they happen, and you never know when they're going to happen, and you never know how dramatic they're going to be or how small they're going to be. Um, this picking away at one's personhood, this othering, it adds up, and it's cumulative. Um, it's cumulative damage to my children, and it's cumulative damage to me as their mother watching watching what goes on. Um, we have a daughter who's 21, Madison, Maddie. Um, she's kind of quiet, not much of a talker, probably because her brother did not give her the chance to talk a lot. <laughs> but she has found her voice and that she really likes to write. Um, she started a blog last fall 
And um, her first, or it was either her first or her second post was being about a mis uh, being mixed race and uh, how some people treated her because of that. And just give me one second, I'm gonna pull it up and I wanna read a little bit of it. And, and I'm gonna read it to you because I, I think it says, it says a lot, I think. Um, the name of it is Privileged Pride. And she says, you do not hear me when I speak. Your eyes glaze over like I have nothing intelligent to say. There's no way I, a racially mixed woman, could say to you something that you do not already possess. For in silence there is power, and you speak as if time is endless and words are infinite. I listen as you condescend, and I absorb what makes you feel above all. So hear me when I say this. You, sir, are no man of no substance if you do not learn to listen rather than preach your beliefs to those who you think have no right to be heard when they speak. Okay. Um, wow. And again, I'm very proud of that post. I think it uh, says a lot. And I'm also very hurt that she had to um, write it. Um, we, we are privileged to have other young people in our lives right now. Um, in addition to our, our two children, uh, we have another dear young person in our life. Um, last fall, a young man moved in with us. Um, he needed a place to land after college. Uh, we've known him since grade school. He's about our son's age. I think he's uh, 23, and uh, he's a, a black young man. Um, just within the week of moving in with us, he got a job cleaning King County Libraries. And it was from, uh, the hours were roughly 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., and he would clean, he would move between libraries a night. He would clean at least a couple every night. And um, one night, not too long after he started working, we got a call from him around midnight. He had locked his keys in his car. Uh. <laughs> um, he was in the library uh, parking lot on Mercer Island. And we decided to use our AAA to get someone to get into his car, um, but we would need to be there with him. So we were concerned about him being there alone a young black man in an old car in a parking lot at that time of night. We were also concerned about William going to be with him because then there were two black men in two cars in a parking lot late at night. We were concerned about how police, neighbors, passerby would respond to seeing one, maybe two black men in the parking lot at that time of night. Uh, we decided we thought maybe it'd be better if I went. Um, William ultimately went, um, and the AAA came, and the keys were, the little window was opened, and they got the keys. Um, what's significant about this is not that anything happened on Mercer Island, but we had to have the conversation. We, these were concerns to us, um, and they were just honest concerns. It was just part of our, okay, we're going to get AAA now. <laughs> who's going to go, and what's the pro I mean, what are the concerns here? Um, the, the young man um, that I mentioned, our young friend, um, I said he has an old car. He purchased, this, uh, purchased it within uh, oh, a short time after moving in with us, and this is the first car he's ever owned. 
uh, and he had never even really had access car to a, uh, to a car or a vehicle to drive on a regular basis before that. Uh, so William felt um, he needed to talk to him what to do, about what to do if he was pulled over uh, for any reason. Uh, William had the talk with him. Um, and then within, I don't know, within a few weeks of uh, this, the Mercer Island incident and the, the talk with our young friend, uh, he was stopped by the police. He, uh, he got home from work at about 11 o'clock one night, and he wasn't supposed to be home till quite a bit later. Um, we asked, uh, you know, we asked him, why are you home early? We thought, are you sick? What's going on? Uh, we were concerned. And he shared that he had been pulled over by a police officer near Red, the Redmond Library that he'd been cleaning. The officer did not give him a ticket or a warning or even a reason as to why he was pulled over. The officer did say something to the effect to our uh, young friend that you should watch out. Um, our young man was so shook up that he just came home. He, he mm. called his supervisor and said, I can't, I, I, I'm, I can't do it. Um, I see videos and news reporting about young unarmed black men being shot by law enforcement and my heart goes out to the parents, the young people, and the police officers. Uh, I know it could be my son, my nephew, the young black men um, that is living with, the young black man that's living with us, the other young black men in our lives. It could be William. Um, it may not be rational, but I check the newspaper most mornings to see if there's reports of uh, young unarmed black men being um, shot in the area. Uh, I'm hoping I don't see my son or another loved one's name there, and I know I would be notified uh, as soon as the victim was identified, but I still look. Um, benign incidents like I've been sharing about can too often go dramatically wrong, dramatically bad. And the fact that a young person, a young man's skin color makes him inherently suspicious in our society, um, that's what I'm acutely aware of. Um, that it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily take anything to be suspect. To, you don't have to do anything if you're black to be suspect. Um, I found uh, myself, even in very common settings, uh, the coffee shop, the grocery store, trying to protect my children and even my, and even my husband with my whiteness um, and the cultural and social capital that comes with that. Um, I try to use my whiteness sometimes almost as a shield and, and that hurts my heart. That is demeaning to my husband and my children. And on the other side, I want to keep them safe, as safe as I can. Um, sometimes I even do this physically. I walk close, uh, I stay very observant. Uh, when I'm especially out with my, with my son, 
Uh, one, he's an affectionate guy anyway, arms around and talking all the time. But uh, I will put my arm around him because I see people looking and they're wondering, what's that 6'2", 200-pound black guy doing? They're just, it just catches their eye because of the skin color and they're paying more attention than if that was not a young black man, if it was a young white man walking beside me. Um, that's, you know, I want to protect them from the hurt and humiliation that at any moment could be hurled at them solely because of their skin color, but I can't do that. Uh, but I still try. I'm their mom, I'm their wife, they're my loved ones. Um, that's my story as the white mom of mixed race kids and a black, hus black husband. Your turn. Any more time? Okay. One more minute. One more. Oh. So if you haven't, Pam made reference to the talk. And if you don't, or if you're not familiar with it, just go in your search engine and put in the talk. It, it, it's basically a conversation parents have to have with children of color, particularly sons, to tell them, to warn them what they have to be prepared for um, out in society and, 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 and kind of guard their behavior. It's, it's quite moving uh, when you realize this has to be told. But uh, one thing that I wanted to share, since I have one minute, um, <laughs> you know what, we talk about racism and we talk about the, the, the impact that it has on our lives and one piece that I, that I, that I want to bring up that, that's not just right on the tip of everyone's tongue, and it's a phrase that a lot of people don't like, and I don't prefer it myself, it's called white privilege, because I think it's a misnomer. I think it's not a privilege that has been, or anything that has been given. It's what has been taken from me as a black man. Um, as a black man, my trustworthiness, my truthfulness, my integrity, my ethics, my honesty, my respectability are all brought into question just because of the color of my skin. For no reason, nothing that I've done, my accomplishments are marginalized and discounted. Um, I'm excluded, like I said, for nothing that I've done, nothing that I've said, not even anything that I believe. It's only because of the color of my skin. I'm guilty before proven innocent. I'm viewed as suspicious in my neighborhood, in my workplace, sometimes even in my church. And I say even in my church because and I want to make this point. I've been here 28 years. Um, I'm here most Sundays when we're in town. Pretty much every Sunday we're in town. I grew up in the church. <laughs> Worship and praise is in, it, it, it's part of my life. And in congregation, it's just a way of life for me. Um, I've taught Sunday school here for six years, served on session, as you see in the, in the, in the bio, served on the finance committee for seven years in the foundation. Um, this is my house of worship. And... Occasionally, when I walk in the door, I'm treated as a guest. I'm greeted as a guest. And I understand there's no way that anyone can know all of the 2,500 members, 4,000 attenders that are, that are here. But when you walk in the door, treat them as anyone that as they just another member of the church, since no one knows all 4,000 attenders here. Just treat them as another attender of the church. I, I you know, in the, in the, in the, in the 60s, um, there was this fight for 
equal rights, equal rights in this nation. I, I would like us, I mean, to move from equal rights in this nation to equal rights to this nation. I've said that equal rights to this nation, equal rights to my neighborhood, equal rights to my church. I want equal rights to my church. And, and, and I don't get angry about these things, but it's just very frustrating. It's frustrating the way our nation has responded or a lack of the way they responded to racism and then frustrated in the way the Christian church sometimes has responded or lack of response to racism. Um, just one last thing. <laughs> I'm out of fingers over here. I'm running okay. out of fingers. I don't About a month ago, there was a, a, a conference here on a Friday uh, put on by the Eastside Race and Leadership Coalition. There were civic leaders and business leaders and mm -hmm. educators and philanthropists here. There were, what, 200 or so? Mm. Yeah. And we filled we fill the room up there in, in the upper campus, and we used a lot of the classrooms for breakout sessions. And one of the sessions, um, the question was asked, what would racial justice look like to you? And I thought about it for a long time, and I, and I, and I came up and I said, you know, it would mean that I would not have to take the per my, my perceived race into consideration in dealing, I mean, in, in navigating our society. I would not have to take it into consideration. That would be racial justice to me. Thank you. I want to thank you both for the uh, tremendous self-disclosure. You have given us a gift. Pass both mics down the line, if you will. Given us a gift. So, Audrey Kim. Hello. Look at you. <laughs> Those are my fans. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Your fans, yeah. We are so glad to have you here and being part of this panel today, Audrey. Uh, I, I think that your perspective, your experience and your perspective is something every one of us can learn from. Uh, I do have a caution, however. Uh, I'm a member of a truancy board here in this community. Oh, no. And um, I heard a story about you missing school. And I think what? you need to clear that up for us. Never. OK. Before I get into that, I would just like oh. to. <laughs> 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 um, um, a little closer. A oh, closer. Um, I don't have a story. So when I was asked to do this panel, I was very at first, I was confused about like my position and and why I was important because if I'm being honest, like my story is not even to the level of Pam and Williams. Like I, um, I even see my, my myself as like privileged because I don't like I've not been clearly discriminated as being an Asian person, but I do see it. Um, and I'm very aware of it, but my, much of my story is what can happen if you exude what is the opposite of racism, of you know, what acceptance is. Hmm. So back to me missing school. Oh, um, yes. So 
typically when you tell your story, you start around the beginning, but I'm going to start on March 22nd, 2019. Um, it was a Friday, and I was missing school, uh, but I do have a good reason. <laughs> I was uh, writing an 18-page documentation for a tech competition, and I woke up at 4 to do it, and I didn't finish till 11, and also that same day, we were leaving for the Bell Press junior-senior retreat, and I still had not packed. And so going to school was very unrealistic by, <laughs> by, <laughs> by the time it was. Um, and my mom wasn't too happy, but she still loves me despite my poor attendance. <laughs> I'm hoping you, you can do that too, Tom. Yes. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, walking up my stairs uh, with my laundry when my mom stopped me to talk about a few things. And um, we were just talking about school, and at the end of the conversation, she told me that I didn't get into a couple colleges that I was really hoping to get into. And, you know, immediately I felt crushed. Um, and for those who can't relate, um, to like the whole college rejection, you might be thinking, oh, college rejection, it's fine. Um, but you know, as someone who's grown up in this, this time and uh, my timeline, you know, college is very like exemplified and very um, put up on a pedestal. So, you know, I waited 12 years in grade school for the college admissions. I spent months of SAT prep. I did three months writing college essays, another three months hoping to get into a few schools to be you know, told that you've been rejected by almost every single one of them. Uh, so I felt like crap, but the more explicit version. <laughs> um, and so I told my mom, I'm so sorry, but I have to leave this conversation. So I went up to my room and I, I just had a mental breakdown. And mm. so I sat on the floor of my room, you know, crying, and I had this moment of absolute resentment towards myself. I started to say things like, you are worth absolutely nothing. You are actually a failure. 12 years of grade school and this is all you can amount to. Um, a million people could tell you that you are valuable, but you know the truth. You are nothing. And I, I felt this destructive and overwhelming sense of emptiness. Mm. But a middle school, a minuscule part of my heart still felt at peace. And I didn't know why, and that made things much more frustrating because um, I wanted to feel like nothing. But for some reason, I, I couldn't just let myself feel 120% you know, empty. And there was a subtle yet dense presence of peace that wouldn't leave me. And I knew it was God. Uh, so I began to think about my faith and how much I've grown just over this past year. And all I could think about was this community at Bell Press and the people and the mentors and the friends that spoke and continue to speak truth into my life. And in that moment, I told myself that those truths were not in vain and were not meaningless. So Audrey sitting on the floor of her room, bawling her eyes out, being very hysterical, I asked myself out loud, I said, who are you, Audrey? And I said, I'm a child of God. I have worth because 
God chose me. I was chosen to be here in this world, and I have a place in this world. I have meaning. I have purpose. I have not been left. And I will get through this because God promises it. And I said this over and over again until that, you know, small shard of peace in my heart um, was just, has expanded to the, the, I'm just trying to say my heart was so full. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was a very scary and surreal moment for me because it felt like I was holding a knife to my faith, and I'm saying this very nonchalantly compared to what it felt like. Um, but afterwards, I had this, I felt so at peace and so confident. You know, we talk a lot about God's redemption in the world, but to feel it is on another level. So once I collected myself, um, and I finished my laundry. <laughs> I <laughs> left for the Bell Press Senior Retreat, and I told this exact story to my small groups that night. And and I told they let me tell, or they let me say my struggles and how much it hurt. Um, and their response was, they prayed for me. And not only did they pray for me, uh, but they looked at me, and they looked not at my skin, but at my heart, and said, we are proud of you, and we love you. And that is community. You know, that is community. It was never about my race. It was never about my skin. It wasn't even about my faith. Uh, But these people looked past my skin and into my heart and said, I love you regardless of anything else because that's what God does. So I have, I'm a pastor's daughter if you do not know, and I have <laughs> been a pastor's daughter for a very long time. Um, oh, your whole life. Practically, yes. Yeah, your whole life, yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in a multi-ethnic church, one that my family owned and one that I was raised in. And um, we my parents tried very hard to make sure that the church was multi-ethnic and that it was inclusive and that was actually being seen. And while I was messing around on Sundays, um, they were working so hard to make sure that was happening. Um, And I'm just so blessed that my childhood and the environment I grew up in was, um, was about embrace and about embracing others and feeling that love and that being routine. And that was my normal. And a lot of people can't say that. And Mm -hmm. I am very fortunate that that was what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, A few things that I've learned from, you know, living life on this earth and um, just looking at my own story is that embracing others is a chain reaction. That's my first one. And I know this because the communities that have embraced me as a human rather than as a stereotype, have allowed me to embrace others with that same love. My hope is that, you know, as a community, we would know our potential. If you know that love that I'm talking about, that love that knows no bounds, that love that is above 
discrimination, above shame, above sin, um, then you also have the power to teach others how to love in that way. Uh, the second part is vulnerability is very scary, but it is not bigger than the change it can bring. And the reason why I say that is because if you've noticed, I've been like shaking and like, I'm pretty sure William can tell that my hands are super sweaty, but <laughs> I have, I would, for just up until, <laughs> uh, I've been both excited and completely terrified to tell my story today because it puts me, it makes me feel very vulnerable. Um, but I also know that vulnerability is what changes people's hearts and what moves hearts. And if we, if we wanna see change, we have to be more vulnerable. And that is how we continue that conversation of justice. So thank you. I was right about you, Audrey. (laughs) (laughs) I said we all had something to learn, and you made that clear. Thank you so much for sharing. Of course. You better get prepped for the questions that are going to come your way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So our last panelists. We're going to hear together from the Dudleys. Now, we've heard lots of family stories about the Dudleys from sermons. So we're going to get the straight stuff today. Scott and Christina, you're on. Okay, except I think I'm first. And I should begin with a confession, uh, which is we've all been mutually oppressing each other, even on this couch. (laughs) But I will say, I will say... I'm going I'm to tell on you, William. I will say, like, I wonder what's for dinner. And William said, oh, it's Mandarin. No, Mediterranean. <laughs> so, you know, our church has a ways to go, even on the, even the panelists. We just, you know, we're working on it. Um, yeah, so anyways, everyone was so lovely and prepared. And you, he's gotten, I have not, I'm going to hold the program like I wrote something on it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, luckily, I've been Asian all my life. So I said, I think I can wing this one. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's not just you. I grew up in the Bay Area, mostly, from the time I was four. Though I remember I was temping at this one place with some other people, and they were like, oh, we're all Midwestern. They were talking to each other. We're all Midwesterners, born in Illinois and Iowa. And I said, I was born in Indiana. So I became an honorary Midwesterner that day. But anyways... (laughs) <laughs> Just assumptions made, but I, I, so I lived in, uh, born in Indiana, family moved to Tennessee, which is where my sister and I learned to speak, and apparently we had southern accents when we came out to California, <laughs> but, and that freaked everybody out at the preschool, but, <laughs> but that went away really quickly after a few years in California, but I grew up, and same thing, where I lived um, from the time I was nine If you've been in the Bay Area, the Bay Area kind of went through the demographic change that our area has gone through. Uh, It was already happening back then. And so um, I remember being a kid, and I think about my elementary school, pretty white. It was pretty white. Um, A few black, a few um, other colors, a couple Asians, but by the time I hit junior high and high school, just 
wow, suddenly everybody from everywhere. And at the time, especially in Milpitas, um, Sylvia Lindgren, she's the only other person I know who's like been to Milpitas. Pretty excited. <laughs> Anyways, um, people were coming from Vietnam, they were coming from Cambodia, and mm -hmm. so there was a lot of meeting people and having them say, wow, you speak English really well. And in their defense, in their defense, it was because so many Asians were pouring into the Bay Area and they were not. They were, they were from places where English uh, would be their second language. So, you know, I can cut them a little snack, the slack, but it was so irritating as a kid to be told, wow, you speak really great English. I mean, it might be why I majored in English. I don't know. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, there was that. And um, yeah, so memories of sort of, I don't know, little racial incidents, I have to, I have to go pretty far back because I remember in, in elementary school, you know, you get the kids going, and um, I, I just want you to know, I sometimes do that around the house just <laughs> to bother my kids. But because, <laughs> because, you know, it's like, you don't even understand, right? You know, there's so many Asians there, you don't even understand. But, um, so yeah, but, by the, I, but you know, it's not just a, what color is your skin and how do you respond to people? Because I went to college, I went to Cal, and I had the exact same thought. I was like, I have never seen so many Asians who can speak English. Because I had not. In my high school, hmm. so many of the Asians did not speak English as a first language. So I was like, and I thought, oh my gosh, all those people I've been irritated with when I was a kid, here I am thinking the same thing in my head, right? Because I see, oh, you're Asian, and you can speak English. It's amazing. So um, I, I became a Christian in... I, I feel like after Audrey's talk, we should bring Jesus into it somewhere. I, I became a Christian in college, and the thing I noticed in college was, oh, Campus Crusade is all white, and if you're Asian, they have Asian American Christian Fellowship, but those seem to be super Asian Asians, right? So I thought, okay, this is what's going on in my head, right? Um, and so I thought, well, I better do university. University is like, Lots of Asians, but they seem to be the Asians who spoke, spoke English. So, I mean, what can I say? Um, and really, it, it wasn't until we moved up here that I looked around and I said, where did everybody go? It was amazing to me to suddenly, um, I think when we moved here, what year was it? 2002. 2002. When we moved here, um, I remember getting the little information about Enetai, which is where our kids went to elementary school, and it said Enetai was 10% Asian at the time, and they were mostly Japanese, because, of course, Bellevue had a lot of Japanese population way back when, and I was like, what? You know, what? Where did everybody go? And since then, everybody has come, right? Everybody came, <laughs> and so now you see everything, but... Um, but yeah, it was, it was startling to me. I remember, I don't know, uh, Jan King. <laughs> I remember when we came, um, interviewed with the search committee, and I said, oh, well, you know, where do you like to go for Chinese food? And I don't know why Jan said this, because she doesn't, she goes to plenty of other places. She said, well, we go to, what's it called? P.F. Chang's. And I pinched Scott, <laughs> and I thought, oh, no! <laughs> you know, they go to P.F. Chang's. But it's, it's, you know, it's not considered like a Chinese restaurant where I come from, right? So, like, oh, I remember taking 
my family one time when we were living in Palo Alto, taking them to a Chinese restaurant in Palo Alto, and my grandfather being very angry and uncomfortable the whole time because he said, this is a white restaurant. <laughs> and I'm like, the waiters are Chinese. I'm so sorry. So, um, so yeah, we came up here. And funny thing, our church did not have a lot of Asian people at the time. It's not like we have zillions now, but we have more, right? And if you remember Renee Timmerman, it used to be just me and Renee, I guess, because people would always mistake us for each other. And, um, and so poor Renee is living my life in reverse, and now she's in Tennessee. But uh, <laughs> Renee, I told Renee one time after hearing this several times that uh, Renee and our dead ringers for each other, I said, Renee, next Sunday, you take your husband and go in the lobby and just make out with him. And I said, and then everybody will be so scandalized. She didn't do it. Renee was too nice. But, um, yeah, so anyways, you know... We're going to have to keep you two apart in the lobby. I can see that. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about white privilege and really it being a subtraction from other groups, there are... I have come to realize, from Scott talking about race and things like that, that... And the whole... The talk, right? The talk that there are things, I have little privileges from being a little Asian woman that I was not aware of, that I didn't think of. When I have been pulled over by cops, I have behaved in ways that would have gotten me arrested or injured. Before you get ideas, I'm just saying, I have been mouthy, right? I've been a little belligerent, not physically, but a little, Scott can vouch, he's been there a couple times. <laughs> Where I have gotten a little testy, Right? And, and I realize now that I, that's a privilege, right? No one is ever going to look at little Asian lady and, and slam me against the car, right? Because clearly I'm just like a chihuahua, right? What am I going to do to you? <laughs> and the other thing is no one ever asks me if I'm the facilities person. No one ever asks me that. And that is a privilege. That you, I mean, sometimes it can be hard to have everyone assume you're really brilliant. But on the other hand, how much more irritating to have people assume you're the facilities person, right? No one ever does that if you're Asian. And if you don't want to talk to the person next to you on the plane, you pretend you don't speak English. I have done it before. Just like sign language and smiling when it's actually, I don't want to talk to you. So, so there are some privileges. So I just want to say, but okay. And, and I will say, I was thinking, Pam, this is totally, your experience means way, it's way deeper than ours. But you know, <laughs> this is so dumb in comparison. But I've noticed when we go into restaurants, my jeans just trampled all over Scott's jeans, if you've seen our kids. I mean, you have to look hard at Jackson and you can see the Dudley in him. Um, but my kids get asked a lot, actually, if they're Mexican, because no one can figure out what on earth they are. Um, but I noticed, like, if we go to restaurants, we have to stick close to him, otherwise they want to seat him by himself. <laughs> so, you know, um, when we're driving to California, we always stop at Sweet Tomatoes south of Portland. My kids love it. But when Scott's coming down to the tray, I always have to say, and that guy, because they're ready to ring us up. They're like, okay, all you black-haired people, let me ring you up, right? It's like, no, that guy, too. <laughs> that guy, too, he's with us. So, um, seems like I... I hope you got it. I got it. You got it. Okay. Scott, take it away. 
you, he, he has the privilege now of wrapping this whole thing up. <laughs> I've told you before, there's no filter here. So just comes, if a thought occurs, it must be said. So obviously, I, white, my journey with race is very different. And I would say it's one of coming, becoming aware that it exists and becoming aware how what I would have formerly turned being colorblind is actually not actually always helpful. Um, in spite mm. of the fact that my high school girlfriend was Latina, in spite of the fact that my first wife was mixed race, Latina and white, and Christina is Chinese, uh, I've mostly been unaware of how race interacts. When we were still in the Bay Area, uh, I remember we were, I've told this story before, but we were having dinner with a couple. She was white, he was black. And I asked, what is it like being in an interracial marriage? And they looked at me and laughed and he said, I don't know, what's it like being in an interracial marriage? <laughs> and in that moment I was like, oh, I am in an interracial marriage. And, and, but as I've, in the last five or six years, I've become aware that, in a, that that's, not, that's not always fair to her or to my kids because in a way I've whitewashed the Chinese culture. Now, in, def in my defense, we met studying Shakespeare together at Stanford, right? So there's a ton of common here. She was raised in the United States. Her parents were immigrants, but she was raised in the United States. So there's lots that we have in common. But I think particularly through parenting over the years, realizing, no, there are some real cultural differences here. And I'm trampling over them. Um, and so one happened, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, we were with her family and we'd gone swimming and I made a comment to her in front of her family about how well my son Jackson swam. And she had to say to me later, don't ever do that in front of my family again. I said, what, compliment our kids? I said, why? And she said, you don't do that in Chinese culture. That's not what you do in Chinese culture. It's, it's inappropriate. So don't do that. Okay. Um, and in that moment, I realized I'm just kind of running over her heritage. I'm assuming whiteness is the norm. White culture, the culture, that's the norm for everyone, and, it, and it's not the norm for everyone. And that was a moment of realizing that. And also, as our kids got older, they were able to start to articulate to us, I think, differences that we didn't even see. Um, and though that's the Chinese way, that's the American way, um, and then to actually try to figure out what does it mean to help my kids have a biracial identity. Uh, I think when we moved here, I became more aware of it because it was very clear that Christina really was one of the few people of color in the church at that time. Um, I mean, there were very few people of color uh, and it was a thing. I mean, I remember people, I was younger than people expected and I don't think at the time people's image was a pastor with a Chinese wife. And no one was mean, um, but there were just these little, little comments that made me aware, oh wait, I, I don't want I, I to just trample over our racial differences. Uh, it's also for me, I've seen it in our kids, and there was a moment, my, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter, all through elementary school, really struggled with math. I mean, every night she was crying in front of her math book, right, and of course, as a Chinese kid, that's not the stereotype, right? <laughs> right? And I would walk by and she would look at me and she'd go, you're bringing me down, dad, you're bringing me down. <laughs> Your genes are bringing me down. <laughs> I should be good at this. And on the one hand, it's lighthearted. On the other hand, why should she have to think that? Why can't a Chinese kid not be good at math? 
and actually love literature and drama and the other things that she was more, uh, more wired for. Um, and so I think just watching, seeing over the years are, that we actually, race does matter. And it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. My kids, oh my goodness, the gift they've been given to have immigrant grandparents and, and to be part of a family that includes different cultures and to the, the richness that that has given them and how that expands them um, and experiences that I get to have. Well, when we go to a real Chinese restaurant in, in the Bay Area, I am very frequently the only white guy in the room. Um, and, but what a rich privilege for my kids, right, to be able to see all that. Um, and so I think through our, through our raising kids together has opened my eyes to the ways that I've formerly been kind of blind to race. And I wonder in what ways was I just kind of running over my Latina first wife and my Latina high school girlfriend because I wasn't fully aware that race is real and that it matters. And it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And then that's opened my eyes to what's happening here. Um, I've been very slow to kind of understand this. And, 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 and I, we do pretty well, but I think Darla and, and, and William and Pam, you would say that sometimes it happens here, um, tragically. Um, one story, a, a, a black woman uh, showed up to be an usher, and that, this happened here, and the person that she was relieving from duty said, oh, no, 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 you must be a greeter. And the woman said, no, 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 I'm here to be an usher, and this went back and forth a couple of times, and finally the person she was relieving said, well, are you sure you can handle the money? And you just kind of wonder would that comment have been said to a white person? And, and, and maybe, maybe this person just wanted to make sure that this person was trained. That could be it, but it kind of has to make you wonder, right? And the fact that you have to ask the question. And so just in this journey, seeing that, 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 that race matters, um, you can't be colorblind, but it's okay because if we could just figure out this makes us richer together, um, we, have, we have, it's just, we're just bigger if we can figure this out. And I will say that for my kids, um, I think, Audrey, very much like your experience here, my kids have felt really nothing but loved here uh, and accepted. And I, and I am grateful for that for the same reasons you said, that, that, the, that, the, that, that the color of their skin, their ethnic heritage, didn't obscure the fact that they were them. And you guys have been great about putting up with them in all their different moods and faces. Hearing from our panelists has been amazing, hasn't it? Now look, we're not quite ready to break out of this room, but we are ready to stand and stretch, and now's the time to get your Q&A questions or comments written down really fast because we're gonna gather them from you. Why don't you just stand for a moment, and I'll see if I can get these people out of these couches. I don't know if I can. <laughs> stretch, yeah. Okay, our Presbyterian posteriors are awake. We can return to our seats. Presbyterian posteriors are perky, so it alliterates. And it would be three points. So please, uh, have a seat, and let's have those uh, Q&A cards coming our way as soon as you can, and we're gonna let our panelists respond to some things that uh, you may be curious about. As those are being gathered, I'll just mention this. Oh yeah, I told you before, those cards were in your programs, right? Those little cards, yeah. 
All right, yeah, they'll be coming up this way in just a moment. Uh, just mention quickly, uh, William and I have in common that we are both uh, sons of Pentecostal preachers. And uh, the, the thing we've had a discussion about is the fact that um, though I'm a bit older, nevertheless we are generationally more or less placed alike and our parents were church leaders uh, in the Pentecostal movement and William's dad was the pastor of a church in God in Christ. My dad was a pastor of an Assemblies of God church. Originally, those people were together in the Pentecostal revival of the early 20th century and the camp meetings. And one of the famous things that happened was the Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles, 1903. And across the country, there, were all, there was a, just a fervency um, of evangelism and spiritual gifts being displayed. And as that began to gain momentum and need to come into some organizational structure, the race question was faced. And I am desperately sad to say that what should have been one church with one message demonstrating to the entire country the unity of the body of Christ organizationally had to be two because the white people couldn't worship with the black people. I just want to add to that. If you study revival, particularly the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, those churches were also multi-ethnic until eventually race started to eat away at that and they divided. So genuine revival, one of the marks of genuine revival is actually multi-ethnic communities worshiping together. It's just so like the Book of Acts. Okay, what do we have? So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you respond as you may be inclined. Question is, when is a good time, i.e. age, to share the talk with young people, with your children? When would be the time to share the talk? Maybe similar, when is a good time to have a discussion about race and the pressures of being a mixed-race child? Um. I, I will say when we were preparing for this, um, the memory came to me of, of William talking to our son, essentially what was the talk, and he was very young. I think he was three or four, and I was, and it took me aback. I, I kind of thought, what, what's going on here? And he's awful young to be talking to him about. I mean, you're always trying to instill in your children um, respect and, and sure. you know, respectful behavior and that type of thing. But this went beyond that. And, and I recall it continuing throughout our son's life, mm -hmm. William having these conversations. It wasn't a one-time thing. It was not a one-time, and it no. was, I mean, it, it, was, it was going on throughout his life. Um, so I'll pass it to William, but that's, that's my memory. Yeah. I was gonna say, I, I recall um, my mother talking to me about it, and I was probably not quite, maybe 10. Maybe 10? Maybe 10, and my brother talked to me about it, maybe even a little bit before that. My brother's eight years older than I am. Mm -hmm. um, and like Pam says, 
I thought, as opposed to a one big talk, just a gradual part of life as you teach your kids, and this is just one of the things that I thought he should know and just teach him as we go along, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, son, we need to sit down and have the talk. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people wait until early teenage years or, you know, thereabouts, but yeah. Good. I appreciate your responses. And I like the idea that it's not a one-time, it's a continual thing. And it probably is important to start just as soon as you think they can comprehend what's going on. We have another question here. Um, this is an interesting thing. Someone is asking, how can a white person initiate a discussion about race, culture, so on, without sounding ignorant or annoying? How can I avoid either ignoring or focusing too much on those differences? Try to say you people a lot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's a joke in our family about the you people, because <laughs> it started early on where... Oftentimes, black people were like, you people, what do you people want? What's, so I call William you people sometimes, but anyway. Uh, so so uh, can you share with us though, something? So white people who have a desire to initiate a conversation in this area, but um, in typical white fragility, are scared to death. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I mean, I think... White people, I am one, obviously. Um, you need to put aside, if you really want to understand your brothers and sisters who are of persons of color, you need to put aside your pride and your fear that you're going to say something wrong or your fear that you're going to appear ignorant because you probably are. Um, and if you really, really want to know your brothers and sisters, you need to be vulnerable and you need to ask, the, be sure. open about asking questions. Um, I, if I could add one thing, I asked Sergio Chavez that same question, and Pam, he gave an answer similar to yours. You probably will say something inappropriate. Do you care enough about me to overcome your fear of that moment and the discomfort that will follow to actually get to know my life? I thought that was a wonderful answer. Uh, this question comes, I think, from um, one of our students. Uh, what would you suggest for high schoolers? What, they, what could they do to foster uh, diversity and a sense of unity among the ethnic groups in their schools? <laughs> no, not that she goes to school very often, but... <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, can you say the last part of that question? Sure. So um, what do you suggest for high schoolers? How do they foster a sense of diversity and some unity in the diversity in their schools? Um, so I'm a high schooler, and I do not see, like, there is not, like, a very strong presence of racial discrimination um, in the school that I go to, but I, actually, I have heard... Um, and seen some questionable things. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's the students that are doing it. And I think the one thing is, um, 
especially for youth, and how we can foster diversity and unity is to um, be braver. And the reason why I say that is typically people who are, you know, making, it's never like a really harsh like statement, it's always a joke. You know, it's always a joke. It's something that's supposed to be taken lighthearted, but it's, it hurts nonetheless. And I think we, the reason why people are so quick to make those jokes is because they want to fit in and because they, they, if one person does it then and, and people find it funny, then also if they do it as well, they'll be perceived as funny and more liked. And I think people need to realize that it's not right to do and um, be brave in calling that out um, and be brave in not letting, in, in stopping it where it is, you know? Because we're at a young age, we're gonna grow up and become adults and partake in society, so be brave and um, be open to having a conversation with someone about why it's wrong. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you. I, I would just like to add the adults in our teens' lives, um, including parents, friends, mentors, teachers, curriculum, to understand our history, why that's not funny, why that's not a joke, why that may really hurt. And I think there's, I, I think if we have a better understanding of our racial history, um, even our, our youth would be, uh, I, I think it would be better for our youth and they would understand and it'd be easier maybe to say that's not appropriate or that's not, that's not right. Appreciate that. Um, this is a little terse, but I think we should take it. Um, Panel started out saying race does not exist with examples from the, from the Bible. Uh, I started out with examples from the Bible saying that race exists. There's one of them, uh, the human race. The question goes on to say, though, and ended saying race is real, which is it? So here's the confusion about the word race, and look, he's so ready. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I mean, Yes, there's only one race, the human race. Um, there are a variety of cultures, though, and, and, and because of what our, what our culture has done, race does enter in. I mean, we've created an artificial category called race, and that artificial category matters. And people's different cultures matter, um, regardless of race, and we don't want to be trampling over other people's cultures. Uh, or assuming one culture speaks for everyone. So I think it, yes, from God's perspective, we're all one race. Uh, from our culture's perspective, we're not, unfortunately, and that's a real thing we got to navigate. And then God did create a variety of cultures. I think that's on purpose because it reflects the diversity of who God is. And to celebrate that rather than to kind of roll over that is what I meant. Appreciate that. Um, this question says, I want so desperately to raise loving and inclusively minded boys. Any experiences to make sure they have conversations that we need to have with them 
since we're white. Any suggestions for white parents raising white children, desiring those children not to exemplify the dominant culture? I've never raised white children. <laughs> hey, guess what? Nobody here's done it. So hypothetically, if you were white, what would? <laughs> I have white children, two of them, and six white grandchildren. Yeah. Would you like to answer the question? Oh, boy, this is not this is not safe. Uh, I mean, you're not safe. I'm safe. You're not safe because I could get on a filibuster. I won't do that. Let me just say this, that six years ago, I awakened to my racism. I was a white kid raised in a white family, a fervently Christian family, in a white church, in a white denomination, because we didn't have the advantage of William and his family. I went to a white school, was ordained into white ministry, and pretty much spent my entire ministry career in suburban white culture. I awakened to the complicity as well as the clear presence within me of the systemic racism that pervades the white dominant culture. So I was not able to raise my children in a way that would cause them to be more perceptive, more sensitive, more available, more disclosing, but guess what? They didn't need me to be that way. They could do it themselves. They grew up in a, in a place where their school mix them with children of different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. They embraced that. They brought those children to us. Uh, when our girls were teenagers, our house was the place the, the gang came. And uh, we got exposed through them to what it's like to be more receptive and sensitive to the multi-ethnic environment. But I don't think it reformed me, not really. But a few years ago, I had some experiences that have really set me in a new direction, and I'm coming to understand not only myself, but my culture far more deeply than ever before, I believe. And I have a lot of correction to do. I have a lot of growing to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm in, in the midst right now uh, of kind of reworking my entire understanding of American history and European history. And I'm also reworking my understanding of the 20th century missionary movement. That out of the European and North American churches, there went a host of white missionaries around the world. Many of them did incredibly and wonderfully good things, and some of them did a great deal of damage. And so I'm just in a place where uh, I'm having to relearn, and you know, who knows how much time I've got. <laughs> uh, I want to spend the rest of my life learning and understanding and more deeply taking hold of the responsibility 
that goes with the privilege of growing up in North America as a white person. Okay, that's it for me. <laughs> what else did he hand me? Ah, listen to this. We've got time for these two. Uh, have you struggled with shame? Shame of your ethnic or your cultural identity? If so, uh, how have you walked through that or been set free from that shame? I just commented on that myself. I'm on that journey. Uh, so it's an issue about your ethnic identity. And has it ever had implicit shame for you? And have you worked on that? And how have you worked on that? Anybody? And then I got a second follow-up question. I think I can speak to that. Um, I grew up in Southern California, as my bio said, and predominantly it was a, the black culture of Southern California, and I really didn't find myself in a contrary culture until I went off to college at WSU. Mm. And um, I think when I got there, uh, the student population was maybe eight to 10,000, maybe a little bit more. There may have been, 100, maybe 200 students, black students on, on campus. Probably half of them were athletes of, of one form or another. We did not have enough black students on campus to have a black student union. Hmm. Being in that, in that culture, in that setting, um, you realize, like I said, coming from Southern California, you realize how different that you, you are and you realize what everybody else is like and what you're not like. And it, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it took a while, it took some time to really realize that um, how different, I mean first, how different I, I was mm -hmm. and, and how I would look, I, I mean I was not only looked different, I acted different and things were different. And that was, that's kind of set me apart set me aside, I mean, I would, and that's where I, you talk about exclusion and, and things weren't just right, and I had to deal with that. I had to deal with that, and I had to embrace who I was, and um, like I said in my, in my thing, uh, that, you know, I'm, my, being black is, is not complicated, it's not complicating my life, I'm comfortable in my skin. I wasn't always comfortable in my skin hmm. in college, and I did have to deal with that, I had to come to grips with that, I had to realize and part of it, and what I did leave out because you cut me off. Um, <laughs> and, and now you're back on, you and know. And now I'm back on. I'm a child of God created in the image of God, mm -hmm. and I grew up knowing that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I could lean on, that I didn't have to um, become what others were mm -hmm. because I was already what God created me to be. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Uh, follow on here from these folks that asked this question. For those who didn't grow up in the church, did becoming a Christian help you become more or possibly less aware of racism? Well, why do you think that is? Has being a Christian sensitized you? Who didn't grow up in church? He didn't grow up in church. Okay, this is for you. <laughs> um, yes, um, though I would say too slowly. Um, I think as I became more aware of cultural differences in my own family, uh, and given what's going on in our country, I started to read through scripture and realize, oh my goodness, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. 
there's hardly a book in the New Testament that doesn't talk about ethnic unity. You've quoted some of them here, but mm -hmm. there's, you can hardly think of a book where Paul's not saying, or someone's not saying, Jews and Gentiles, you need to get along. And it's everywhere in the Old, Old Testament as well. And I think for me, the reason I'm passionate about this, I get a lot of angry comments that I've just gone over, you know, I'm just, this is all political and, you know, I'm some kind of left-wing Democrat and blah, 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 blah. No. Um, for me, it's biblical. And it's no minor little thing. It's not just in one or two places. It's everywhere. And if I'm going to call myself a follower of Christ, let alone a pastor, when God is repeating a message so often, you got to obey. And so, yes. And also the beauty of that, if I could just tag on a little bit to the shame question, as a white male, it is easy to start to feel shame, right? Yes, like, oh absolutely. my gosh, I'm the problem here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm villain number one. Racist, misogynist, blah, 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 blah. I don't, guilt is not a helpful emotion unless, I mean, conviction is. Mm -hmm. And to say instead, what's, what's the responsibility I've been given and the opportunity I've been given to help us as a church and us as a culture open ourselves up to the wonderful, beautiful diversity that God created? And how can I as a white person steward that? And what's the best way that I can be part of that? Knowing that I'm not the only answer to that, people, everyone on this couch and all of you. So I think for me, it, this, it, it has been a deeply spiritual convicting experience for me that this is non-optional for the people of God. Non-optional. That's right. That's right. So um, this has been a rich experience in that we've been able to hear from these folks from their lives. And we want to thank them again just for their willingness to disclose themselves in this way. <clears throat> and we're not quite finished because there is a wonderful meal that has been planned for us all. And there are tables out there where we can gather around and you're going to be able to, encourage, uh, to continue in discussion, and I hope that it'll be rich for you. Anthony's coming on right now to give us the logistic directions. One more time for the panelists, please. And Tom Brewer. And our uh, AV team, NAF, Swoops in the back, facilities, thank you. All right, I have a few things that I need to share uh, as we go out there and eat some really good food. So before that, inside your program, there's a feedback form. If you would please take just a minute uh, as we're doing this, just to, sh just to write down some uh, uh, feedback for us that we can know how this event went and how we can make it better in the future. Um, and then dinner tonight is free. And there is a donation box out there. If you want to give something, you can, but it, do not feel obligated to give anything. It is an absolutely free dinner uh, that is going to be very delicious. And it is Mediterranean, William, not uh. <laughs> so first, we're going to dismiss parents to go get your children from childcare, um, And then you can return back, and you can uh, get in line and get your food on the right side. And then 
each table will have a table host. Table host, if you know you're a table host, raise your hand really quick. Great, look around. You see table hosts around here. They're going to basically be facilitating conversations. Um, each table will have one, and you, the panelists are also table hosts as well. Um, yeah, you didn't know. Now you are. <laughs> and am I missing anything? We also, if there's anything tonight, maybe you heard some things that are uh, just heavy on your heart or some things that really inspired you and encouraged you. We also have prayer ministers here. And um, if you need prayer, if you just want to pray that God can uh, fix your heart or he can uh, mend your heart in ways that, uh, ways that maybe it feels it needs some mending, right? <laughs> or you just want to be charged and commissioned to go do uh, God's work. We have prayer ministers here tonight, and we want to pray for you um, as you're here. So I think that's everything. Prayer ministers, Linda's, we're over here on the side. We're going to be over here on the side. You guys can go over there now and then get some prayer. Yeah. What was the last thing, Grace? Yes, I'm going to pray. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this event. We thank you for our panelists, God. And again, we ask for prayer of protection. Uh, for they shared their testimonies, and we know that, they over, that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So God, protect them. Uh, protect their lives, protect their hearts, protect their future, Lord God, protect the children that were mentioned here tonight. Um, and God, I pray for our church, Bell Prez, that these stories are not in vain, that they will uh, begin to transform the very culture and uh, fabric of our church, that we will be able to go on and heal this east side, this uh, Bellevue city, Lord God. And we thank you for the food, and we pray that you bless it, Lord. We thank you for the restaurant and the family uh, that owns this restaurant, and that you would um, bless their business Bless their finances, bless the food and the, all the ways, resources that they're using to make this food, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.